You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning, church. Jamie and I had a, uh, a really interesting experience recently. We uh, watched the movie Jumanji, the new Jumanji movie that's out. Um, now, Jamie had gone to the theater, and she had already seen the movie. Uh, so one of the things that, that we decided, I really wanted to see the movie, but we decided in our family that our girls uh, weren't going uh, to watch the movie uh, because we just felt they were too young with the particular content of the movie. But we had a really interesting experience when we uh, rented the movie. So go out, did the red box, got the movie, and we stick the movie in the DVD player. And every preview before the movie started was an animated kids movie. Okay, so every preview before the movie started was directed toward little children. There was not a single preview that was directed toward an adult. There was not a single preview that was directed toward a teenager, who I think is the primary audience of a movie like Jumanji. And that experience, as we were sitting there, we started talking about that, it was very, very telling to me that the directors of the kids' movies knew that children would be watching this particular movie, and that's why they chose to pay to have their advertising for their movie beforehand. You guys follow me? Now, the reason that we personally chose not to let the kids, let our girls watch the movie, and in our house, like I said, PG-13 movies, we like to preview ahead of time, because you just never know. I think some are actually uh, okay if your kids aren't 13. That's the whole parental guidance 13 part. But we like to preview them ahead of time. What was troubling for us about this particular movie is the, the kind of the sexual lifestyle that the movie promoted among the teenagers, okay? Now, the movie's hilarious, right? You can't put Kevin Hart and Jack Black in a movie together and it not just be a hilarious, fun movie to watch, right? But at the same time, it, it conveyed some ideas that I believe represent kind of how the dominant culture views a sexuality. There is a, a cultural narrative, okay? This is a, a message that may not be on a billboard, but you see it in movies. Uh, it's the, the way the dominant culture views sex. And the, the dominant cultural narrative about sex says this, your body is yours, to do whatever you wish with it. Now, this narrative is constantly in our faces all the time. It says that if you have a sexual desire, you have every right, and not only that, you should fulfill that sexual desire as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. That's kind of the, kind of the line. Sex today is a way to find yourself. And without it, the culture says you can't truly know who you are until you experience yourself sexually. It's about you figuring out who you are. You are a, a, a desiring being, and you need to fulfill those desires to find out exactly who you are. So it's about autonomy, right? Right? It's about you being the own authority in your life. But what if true freedom isn't found being detached from something, 
but it's being attached to someone. What if there is a creator who made us and and has a plan, and it's learning to live life under his authority and according to his ways that we truly find freedom in this life? Now, today's message is going to be directed to the young people in this community. Kids, I got kids, if you're a kid in the room, meaning you're not an adult, everybody listening? I want you guys to try really hard to listen to this message. I wrote this message for you. I thought about you all week long as I was thinking about what Peter is saying and how it applies to this church. Now, some of the things that we're going to talk about right now, you may have not experienced yet if you're not a teenager, but that doesn't mean that very soon you are going to, especially those of you who are entering into the middle school years. Okay? If you guys can write or color and still listen, I'm cool with that. Adults, I know some of you guys are like that too. You know, you get a little distracted. Feel free to color. But I want us all to listen. And ideally, this conversation is just meant to, this message is meant to get a conversation going that I would like for us as parents and for us as home communities to go out and continuing to have with kids. Children, you guys need to know that you are growing up in a culture that looks at sex differently than when your parents were your age. Now, there's some similarity. We could kind of see the writing on the wall, my age, I guess, that I'm talking to. It's not like we grew up in a culture that was blind to to sex and sexual desires. But it's today is a vastly different culture than the one I grew up in. Kids, you live in a culture that's that's vastly different from the one your grandparents grew up in, and you're living in a culture that your great-grandparents couldn't even have fathomed the type of challenges that you guys will face during the teenage years and during your young, young adult years are different than any generation has ever faced, particularly here where we live today. So we need to start talking about these particular things. Parents, the reason that we're going to talk about sexuality in church is because most of us never had this conversation, especially in church. Most likely. The church that you grew up in did not talk about this. This is one of those passages of Scripture that they just skipped over. It's kind of like the book of Song of Solomon. You just don't read it in the church, right? We have got to learn to talk about these things. Parents, if the content of this message... If the things that I am saying, if this is the first time your kids are hearing about pornography and about sex outside of marriage, you are setting your children up to fail when they get older. I know our intention as parents, because I'm a parent, like I'm having to make this choice with you guys. What do I talk to my kids about? What do I not talk to my kids about? We have to talk about this even if our kids aren't experiencing it right now, because the culture is screaming this at them. They, have, they are seeing it. They are living inside of it. And we are not doing justice to prepare them for the pressure that they are going to face. And they will fail unless we build them up to resist that. So we have to start having these conversations. 
We're also talking about this because Peter talks about it in his letter, and we're exegetically working through the book of 1 Peter. Now, Peter, in his letter today, is going to talk about the flesh. He's going to talk about a lifestyle that's contrary to what it means to be the people of God. He's going to list some sexual sins. Now, Peter's talking about about the whole lifestyle. I'm going to be looking very specific at sexuality, right? So I'm taking something that he mentions, and I'm talking a lot more about it than Peter did. When Jamie read my sermon note, she was like, you're talking a lot more about something that Peter spent a little bit of time talking about. That's very intentional. I, talk, I talked to the elders before I did this. I said, we're going to focus this message. We're going to leverage Peter's content, his direction, but we're going to spend more time talking about something that he spends a little bit of time talking about. Now, Peter, as you guys know, throughout his letter, is trying to prepare the church to face the pressures of the culture. Now, it's a dominant Roman culture that the church is under, and they live lives that are radically different from that of the Christian community. So Peter, toward the end of his letter, is getting incredibly practical about what it means to live holy and the hardships that you will face trying to live holy inside of this dominant culture. Now, the reason that we can talk so freely about it today and the reason that I wanted to in First Peter is because there's not a whole lot of difference between the view of sexuality to a first century person and a 21st century person. 2,000 years later, we haven't, it's not like we've gotten a whole lot better in the way that we look at sexuality. It was broken. It was selfish in the first century. It was about self-gratification. And today, 2,000 years later, we've come full circle, and so we have an amazing opportunity to look at God's Word once again and see what He says. So we're going to do this. We're going to look at 1 Peter, all of chapter 4, verses 1 through 19. I want to invite you guys to stand up with me as we read the Word of God. It's going to be up here on the screens also as we read together. 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 1 through 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verse 3. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. And though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and honor, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's keep going here. Verse 12. 
It's because it's a, a thought here. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's written, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it get, begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that Peter Peter wrote so many years ago, but let it be so real to us today. Uh, Touch our hearts with your word as we unpack all of what this means. Uh, Father, uh, I want to be true to your word. I don't want to add to it. I don't want to take away from it. So just give me the ability uh, to convey your message. We ask this in your name. Amen. Guys, have a seat. I love the way that Peter starts off this section in chapter 4. He tells the church, and I think even the young people in the church, remember Peter's not writing to a bunch of adults. He's writing to a congregation like ours. It's a gathering of New Testament believers, including children and teenagers. There was no children's church, right, that they sent the kids off to in the first century. They were all there. They were all hearing this being read to them. And Peter talking to this group of people, facing this cultural pressure to conform, he says, I want you to arm yourself. He literally says, I want you to fight. He uses a military language to describe the way that Christians are to view this pressure that they are being faced to conform. Young people, being a Christian is not just about coming to this building every week. It's not just about the songs we sing. It's not just about the stories that we learn in the Bible. The Christian life is a life of fighting. Well, what are we fighting? Peter says we're fighting something called the flesh. Well, that's weird. Like, I'm fighting my flesh? What is he talking about? The flesh in the Bible is used to describe our sinful desires that are contrary to God's Word, okay? So it it, it talks about the difference between the the Spirit and the flesh. The Spirit are those things that we participate in that that are God's Word and God's ways. And then we have the flesh. These are these things that, these natural desires that we have that are contrary to the way that God created us to live. Now, some of these desires that we have, that all of us feel, are good desires. Desiring in and of itself is not a bad thing. You desire friendship, don't you? You desire companionship. You desire love and relationship. These are good things. But some of our desires are destructive, and they need to learn to be controlled. And in a culture that says, don't control yourself, The Christian has a unique opportunity to represent something that's greater than ourselves in living lives the way that God called us to live. 
When it comes to sexual desire, the culture says, don't fight it, just go with it. It says that you're the author of your story. It says that you deserve to find fulfillment in your body in whatever capacity brings you pleasure. Sexuality in this culture has become a God to be worshipped. And our bodies have become the sacrifice to that God. Because the culture believes it's going to bring fulfillment. Peter tells the Christians, I want you to live for the will of God and not live for the flesh. Okay? How do we do this? How, how are, how are our, the young people here going to withstand the pressures that they face that are going to be greater than anything you and I have ever faced as adults? Children, the only way that you are going to be able to remain strong in your faith is that the ways of God have to be more desirable to you than the ways of the world. Now, the culture that I grew up in was the Southern Bible Belt. I'm a Southern boy, right? And as a part of the culture, there were some sexual values that actually lined up with the values of the Christian culture, okay? And for many of us, I think, a number of you guys grew up here in Portland, and even 20 or 30 years ago, uh, the values were still fairly liberal. But it's nothing like it is today. And we can't tell our kids, I, I, I want you to remain sexually pure until you get married because that's what a good Christian kid does. That message no longer resonates, and it will not resonate with our children because that's not the message of the dominant culture, and they have a louder voice than you do. We have to teach our children that God's ways are just best. Well, well what is it exactly about God's ways. Why would we want to follow God? We want to do it God's way because we believe foundationally that He created us and that God is good. And if He created us and He's good, then He has a good way that He has designed us to live with our bodies sexually. And doing it God's way will actually bring us more happiness and more fulfillment than living the way the world is calling us to live. It comes down to a choice. You have to choose. Are you going to trust God's word? Peter says, are you going to to trust God's word and seek after God's word like a baby seeks milk? Right? Like nourishment for the soul. That's the only thing that's going to give you the strength to withstand. Especially, kids, when you move out of your parents' home and you get to make your own choices, you are going to have to say, I trust the Word of God, and I'm going to submit myself to the Word of God. See, when I was a teenager, most of my motivation to not sin sexually came because I was afraid that if I did, God was going to smack me with a big stick, right? Right? Now, nobody ever taught me that. Nobody ever said, hey, Josh, if you look at pornography, God's going to smack you with a big stick. But I was so afraid of God, right? And I think I I, I understand the fear of the Lord. And I think God is a righteous and just God. 
But fear cannot be a motivating factor to not sin. It just doesn't work. It didn't work in my life because I just continued to enter into this, pa- this pattern of sinning over and over and over again. We cannot be motivated by fear. Children, you will not obey God because you're afraid of God. You have to be motivated out of grace and gratitude. Like, you have to believe that God is just the best thing out there and that doing things His way is just better than doing things your own way. And you're going to learn that lesson the hard way, like many of us did as adults, because we're going to do it our own way, and it's going to be awful, and we're going to face the consequences of that, and we're going to then submit ourselves to the will of God. I pray you guys will learn that lesson early on. One of the the big ideas that's going to help you be able to submit yourself to God is believing that you are special in the eyes of God. This is what Tim was getting at when he read the psalm this morning, our call to worship. David in that psalm is looking out at the universe. He's looking out at the sky and he's like, look at this beauty and this majesty of this creation. And then he looks at humans and he says, We are so much greater than that because God has crowned us with authority. He's even placed us above the angels. David realizes that he is significant and that leads him to gratitude and wanting to live the way that God designed us to live. No other creation of God's can claim the privilege of being made in His image. You are special. You are designed unique. You are not an animal. Don't act like one. The culture says, when it comes to sexual desires, be an animal. And the more animalistic you can be, man, the better. But that's not the way that God designed us to live. Look at... Uh, at Romans here, Romans 12, 1, Paul's getting at the same idea of, of our bodies, and it matters what we do with our bodies. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a good and acceptable and perfect way to offer our bodies to God. And and Paul says here, I want you to discern what that is by testing. I dare you, children, to remain sexually pure until you get married. I I, want to test you and see if it's better. There's never anyone out there who's remained sexually pure who said, oh, that was a bad idea. Man, I wish I would have given away my body to more people when I was growing up because they've experienced the consequences of it. Let's discern, let's trust God. Now, God is not vague in the Bible about what it means to live sexually with our bodies. From the very first pages of Scripture, God says, A man and a woman are designed to enjoy each other sexually in a covenant of marriage. I mean, 
the, the story has just started and the creator of the universe lays that foundation, right? It is so clear in Scripture how the Christians that I have talked to that think they can justify being sexually promiscuous, especially outside of marriage, is astounding to me when you read the Bible. There is not a single story in the Bible of someone who had sex outside of marriage that it wasn't a horrible experience. From, from uh, before the flood to Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham and Hagar that we looked at in the book of Genesis. And then it's going to go on and we're going to look at Tamar and Perez. We're going to look at David and Bathsheba. I mean, you can't look at these stories and say, oh yeah, that was a good idea. That worked out really well for that person. It was a horrible experience because that's not the way that God designed us to live. Well, kids, if you don't trust the Bible, just ask your parents. Ask him. And parents, let's be honest with our children, right? Because they're going to learn from our mistakes many times. We want to model a good model for our children, but we also model repentance for our kids, don't we? And it's the hard things, it's our bad choices that are going to say a lot to our children. Kids, I can't tell you guys how many times as I'm doing counseling with people, the, just the, the, the way that people have been used sexually. Human beings, because we are prideful, I mean, because we are sinful, we have this desire to just fulfill our own, our, our own personal desires. And so many times we wind up using other people to fulfill our desires. I know it's hard to talk about those things, but when we talk about those in front of our children, they learn something. God may have even, He may even use your suffering to teach somebody else something about His redemption. Now, kids, your desire to be sexually active, like I said, is a natural part of the way that God created us. It's like any other desire that you have, like the desire to eat. That's a good desire, right? But would any of us say you can eat anything you want as much as you want? Well, no. We know what that causes. We're not going to talk about that because that's personal, but I know, yeah, we'll talk about, never mind. Um, But there's something very unique about sex because it's the desire that affects our hearts, When we eat, that affects our hearts in a different way. But sexuality, and particularly sinning sexually, it affects your heart. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this about sex. He says, sex is unique because it affects our hearts, not just our bodies. Sin is first and foremost a disorder of the heart. Therefore, it has a large impact on sex. If our heart is sinful... And needs and is in need of redemption, then our passions and our desires for sex are distorted. The sinful heart wants to use sex for selfish reasons. Therefore, the Bible puts rules around it to direct us to use it the right way. I want to be very clear. Kids, sex in the context of marriage 
is a good and beautiful thing. God created our bodies as sexual beings, but sex is more than just about pleasure. It's about uniting two people into one flesh called marriage. Young people, I'm going to tell you something that 90% of your friends will not believe. And this is something that I believe to be more and more true. The Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you are willing to unite with them personally, emotionally, socially, economically, and legally. Right? Don't women, young women, do not give your bodies away to a man. Do not become physically naked and vulnerable with him until you two are willing to become physically vulnerable in every aspect of your life. That is what marriage does. It is the most powerful way to give yourself entirely to a person. So give yourself entirely to a person in marriage. Then the blessing of sexuality will come. Peter goes on in verse 3 here to talk about what wrong sexuality looks like. He even lists some here. He says, for the time that is past suffices for, what, or for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. See, Peter here doesn't just talk about sex or sexual sin. He talks about the lifestyle that comes along with living in the flesh. Now, Hollywood has made this lifestyle a list. They've made this list of vices a list to be admired, a list to be pursued, and we see it in movies, and we see it in culture. For your college years, how many of these lists of vices here just sound like a good way to spend a Friday night? How many athletes and musicians and movie stars flaunt this lifestyle? It's a cultural narrative that pushes you to conform. And kids, you have to be willing to fight that. Peter wants them to know that when they fight, they will suffer. This is a hard road to walk. And so we want to prepare you for that suffering that's coming. Look at what Peter says here in verse 4. He says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. See, there's this cultural expectation to live a certain way, and kids, you will face shame from your friends, from teachers, from the culture if you choose to live differently. Young men, what do you think would happen if when your friend tried to show you pornography, you resisted and said, I'm not going to demean another human being like that because that person has value in the eyes of God. I will not use a woman to fulfill my own sexual desires. What, 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 what would your friend say to that? And can you imagine the testimony that that would bring? to what you represent? Young girls, 
What if during junior high and high school, you decided not to date because you believe there's just more important things to use your time for? That, that dating would just get in the way during those years. You had better priorities than that. What would your friends say to that? Right? That would say something. How about single people, college students? What if on a first date, you made it very clear that you were going to remain sexually, sexually pure until you got married? On the first date, right? There's, there's names for people like that. Prudes and holy rollers. Religious, stuck up. And Peter says, hey, we're all going to answer for the life that we live. We'll all be judged. It matters how we respond to these questions. Why is it worth the sacrifice? Because, like I said, one day we'll all have to give an account. And by you choosing to fight and to do things God's way, it's not just about you. You're going to benefit greatly from that. He talks about these benefits, but Peter also says that you will be a witness to your friends, to those who are going to be judged. He says these choices have, have huge ramifications on our, on our witness. Living a life the way that God designed us is not just about us because it points others toward a loving God who created them and who desires to be with them. Holiness is not just about you. It's not just your ticket to heaven. It's about your witness. It's about pointing others toward God. Peter now turns his attention in the text to, well, what does it look like to live day to day? What what, what does it look like to live inside of this dominant pressure? Do we hide from the culture? Should we take all of our kids and, and, and try to keep them away from all these horrible things out there? We put all our kids in Christian schools and make sure they go to Christian colleges and never leave the house. Look what Peter says here in verse 7. After he's talked about this cultural pressure, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. Peter, as he has throughout his letter, once again goes to this idea of an eternal perspective. I know it's hard to have an eternal perspective when you're a child because you see so much of life ahead of you. But as you get older, right, adults, you realize what's really important in life and that it really is better to do God's will. And life is like a breath, and it's gone. And Peter wants them to use that time wisely that they have. And he lists what that looked like. He says, be self-controlled, sober-minded, loving one another, hospitable, using your gifts to serve others. Well, let's get real practical here. What's it look like to be a young person and to do those things that Peter is talking about? What's it look like to be sober-minded and to be self-controlled? Boys, 
Being sober-minded means being intentional with your time. Men today and young boys are growing up in a culture that requires less of them than at any point in human history. You as a boy can live in your parents' basement playing video games till you're 40, looking at pornography, and it is a completely acceptable use of your time to this culture. Now, it may be a joke, right? But it doesn't mean that it's not acceptable to this culture. Being sober-minded just is, being, is realizing that you're not being expected to do very much. But the Bible has a name for that guy. He's called a sluggard. He just slimes his way through life, living for the purpose of self-fulfillment. And, and we've begun to, this culture now prizes that. Well, this means that being sober-minded is we're going to have to guard ourselves. You have to guard what you do with your time. You have to guard who you spend your time with. Parents, as technology advances, you will not be able to keep your children from looking at pornography. How many of you guys already have kids that are more tech-savvy than you are? You ever ask them to do something on your phone because you can't figure it out? You know, they will be a generation that we will not be able to just put up barriers around this thing. We can't. We have to teach them that it's not just about abstaining, because that's what good Christian kids do, but there's a reason why we want to do things God's way. Let's give young men something to aspire to. Let's call them into greatness and to leadership, to, to sacrificing themselves and their own desires for others. Let's teach them to interact with the opposite sex in a way that glorifies God. Young people, if you are going to be in a dating relationship with someone, you need to have an older godly person that's looking you eye to eye and saying, are you remaining sexually pure? I never had that growing up. I never had a man that came to me and said, I expect this out of you. I expect you to lead my daughter. I expect you to be the one that says no. Let's expect that out of our young men. Well, young women, what does it look like for you to live sober-minded? Many young women today, not all, but many young women, I know many of us did as adults today, uh, we grew up in a home where either our dad was absent physically or our dad was absent emotionally, okay? And because of that, young women, you need to know that you desire affection, okay? And because you didn't get that from your father, you will spend the rest of your life looking for it, okay? Being sober-minded is just being aware that that wound is even there. Realizing that when you enter into a relationship with a boy, you're going to try to get him to fill a void in your life that only God can fill. 
Now, many of you in sitting in this room right now are very blessed and that you're growing up in a home where your dads love you and your parents are together. Praise God. If that happens, it's a rarity these days. If you are growing up in that home, Peter calls them to be hospitable with their gifts, their speaking gifts and their serving gifts. So what does this look like in the context of what he's saying? The essence of hospitality is that you are a hospital. And what do people go to a hospital for? To find healing. Kids, Christian kids, you have an opportunity to invest in friendships. Be wisely about how you invest in friendships. But we want to invest with people who are suffering, our friends in school. This is why we're not going to hide our children away. We're going to invest in those relationships because when your friends who are sexually active begin to suffer the consequences of that, they're going to need someone to go to. And you are to be the hospital that your friends go to 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 receive love and compassion, a serving gift, but they also, you're going to need to use a speaking gift, bringing the truth that God created them to live differently. I believe this is what Peter is getting at, that we're to be a hospital for the world to come to. Young people, you are missionaries on the front lines of a battle for humanity. Be intentional with your relationships. Love the outcast. Hang out with sinners. Jesus did it a lot. Walk with others in their mess. And then Peter says, in order that everything that in order that in everything God may be glorified. Peter starts with suffering and then he ends with suffering in verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed beyond because the Spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. But let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And then he goes on to talk about judgment here. And what he's doing, he's saying it, man, if we were barely saved, there's no hope that the world has unless we are willing to do things God's way. It says in verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, which is us, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If righteous is scarcely saved, the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while, being, while doing good. This is going to be hard, children. You're going to have to trust God. Adults, we're going to have to trust God when we let our kids go into those environments because we believe that God is going to use them there. But if God saved us, then he can save them. And he can save their friends. We have to trust the will of God and continue to press on and continue to do good. Well, what's it look like for a kid to persevere? What's it look like to, to, to I guess, to suffer 
during the, the teenage years and the young adult years. I just want to give you guys just five real practical things. Five things, kids, that you can do that is going to help you remain strong to face the pressure that's going to come. The first one, you need an intimate relationship with Jesus. The culture will tell you that if you have a great romantic sexual experience, you will find fulfillment, but it is a lie. It only leads to immediate gratification that's going to cause you to go looking for it again and again and again. You must speak the truth to your own heart that sex cannot fill a void that only Jesus can fill. Only meeting Christ face to face will fill the emptiness in your heart. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to date Jesus. I know that sounds goofy, but I, I, I really want you to date Jesus. I want you to think about, what would it look like to date Jesus? Go on romantic walks together. Let him whisper sweet nothings into your ear. He, he's, a, he's a relational being. He must be pursued. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing you more than any boy ever will, young women. There's a reason that I tattooed Bride of Christ on my arm, because it's a reminder of who I belong to, right? I belong to somebody, somebody that loves me. Date Jesus. Pursue Him. Second, while we need to be missional in our relationships, you need to surround yourself with close Christian friends. We're not just going bowling today so that you guys can have fun. It is missional, but it's also a way that you guys are meant to grow in your relationships with one another, to connect relationally so that when you face these pressures, you have each other to lean on to help you carry the burden that will continue to come. I had a group of friends in high school and college that kept me out of trouble. And not just kept me out of trouble, they pointed me toward God. It is only because of those friends that I didn't wind up in jail somewhere. It really is. Because most of the buddies that I grew up with and I was hanging out with did. But I had a group of friends that I went to church with, that I walked in relationship with. You're going to have to hang out with somebody. You're going to have to be close with somebody. Be close with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we're doing the things that we're doing as a church. Single people, I would not recommend that you live by yourself. I know that's culturally popular to graduate from college, to go get an apartment. It may not be hard, maybe kind of impossible here to do in Portland, right? Because it's expensive. But not only don't live by yourself, live with other Christian singles who have the same convictions that you do. God exists in a Trinitarian relationship. Why wouldn't you? Right? Marriage isn't the only relationship out there. Brothers and sisters in Christ are meant to be a family, people that will walk with you and love you and hold you accountable. Pursue that. Find it. If you can't find it, create it. How about singles consider living with a godly Christian couple? I mean, who wouldn't want to live with a bunch of kids running around screaming, right? That sounds like an awesome way to live. You know, humanity did it for like the last 7,000 years. 
It's only in the last 50, this idea of like moving off and being autonomous and having your own place. I don't think any of us make wise decisions on our own. We really don't. Not in my life. It's when I was alone that I made the worst decisions. That's because God's given us other people to walk relationally with us, live with other couples, live with other people. Third, uh, young people and all of us should have free and open conversations about sexuality and about life. We should be talking about these things, especially about how sex just plays out in everyday life and in relationships. Parents need to do this with their kids. Uh, I've always appreciated Royce's model of having serious conversations around the dinner table. Uh, We've started doing that with our kids because we sit down, we have dinner together, and somebody's got to bring a topic of conversation. Let's have real conversation, right? You're all sitting there. Let's use that time wisely. But it's not just about us as families. Let's do this in, in home communities, Starting this past year, kids started being included in home community. Uh, the Zerfos home community with Nate Crone, the kids participate in the home community. In our community, Duncan and Madison and Michelle are getting, coming into that middle school years where we're going to start asking them to sit in with the adults and participate in the conversation. And we're going to have real conversations, and they're going to see us having those conversations. We're going to talk about them. We're going to talk about our struggles. Kyra and Noel are doing it too with the Fuller Home Community. We're intentional in doing these things. Let's not shy away because our kids are suddenly here. Married people, I encourage you guys to invite younger people, younger couples over to your house on a regular basis to have dinner. And look them in the eye and say, are you remaining pure in that relationship? That's what, that's what it means to be a family. You were once there. And although you didn't make the best choices, doesn't mean that you don't have anything to offer. Many times we're so shamed by our past sin, but God can use our past sin in a powerful way to be a lesson to someone else of what not to do. That's what the Old Testament's meant to be. <laughs> don't do that, you know? God had so many stories He let people fail so that we could read it and we could learn from that failure. Let's have honest conversations with our own failures. Fourth, we're almost there. I'm about wrapping up here, kids. I know it's long. Fourth thing, I encourage you guys, guard what goes through your eyes and into your heart. Like I said with technology, you guys are going to have to guard your hearts. The heart is the seat of desires and you cannot feed your heart By looking at things, by watching movies, you cannot feed those desires and not expect them to grow and to take over. If you feed the desires, the desires will control you. Look what Paul says here in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Parents, what are we modeling in the evenings with our time and what we watch for our kids? It, there's many ways to use your time, and I'm not, you know, I don't want to be too prudish here and say you can't watch this and you can't watch this, but if you're feeding your own eyes and your own heart, you're feeding that entire house. 
So choose to do something good and honorable and lovely and commendable with your time. There are good things out there to watch. There are good things out there to read. Let's feed our hearts. Let's model this for our kids. Children, we all will have sexual thoughts, but it's choosing not to dwell on those thoughts. Martin Luther says this, Speaking about sexual desires, he says, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. Isn't that funny? Let's look at sexuality that way. The, the thoughts are going to come, but I don't have to feed those thoughts. Lastly, you need to know that there is always forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Christ's atoning work on the cross washes us clean of all sin, past, future, present. If you are a single person or a married person who has sinned sexually, you are not beyond the redemption of Christ. You are not used goods. You did not mess up God's perfect, perfect plan for your virginity or for your future marriage. You should not live in regret God's sovereignty has not been derailed by our sinfulness. The redemptive nature of God is greater than any sin we could ever commit or any sin that could ever be committed against us. Remember that truth. Dedicate your body to God, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude. And when you sin sexually and you repent... Grace means even more. To know that you are never loved any less than when you sin or when you're doing good, the blood of Jesus covers all of that. When you believe that, it radically changes the way that you live. Communion now, as we get ready to take, is a beautiful reminder of that truth. That we are all sinful. That we are all selfish. But God loved us enough to make a way for us through Jesus Christ. We have been saved by the grace of God. We are now a part of the family of God. And as you leave this place and have to go back and interact with this culture and with your friendships, you will, face suffer, you will suffer, you will face persecution, but because you are God's, He will always give you strength. He will always be there walking with you through that. How do you know that you can trust God, kids? How do you know that if you do it His way and deny yourself, it's the best way? Because He demonstrated His love for you. The world never did that. Jesus did that for us. Let's remember that. Therefore, we can trust God. We can remain faithful under pressure because He is greater. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank You for Your Word that was written so long ago to Peter and to this church, but it's so real for us today. Now God, um, this battle against the flesh that Peter talks about is something that you knew we would have when you created us. It didn't surprise you when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, but you still chose to create us, knowing that we would sin because you knew it was our sin that would actually lead us to appreciate your grace. Thank you for that, Father. Thank you for grace. And Father, right now, I just want to pray for the kids in this room and the young adults in this room 
Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit to know your ways intimately? Not to just know the Bible as a list of rules or church as just something they were supposed to do, but, but it's about a relationship with you and it's something they want to do. Please, God, I beg you that you open up their minds to the reality of how great you are and how wonderful you are. Give us boldness as a church community, Father, to continue to walk relationally with one another, having the hard conversations that we don't want to have. Let us not pretend, let us not be fake, but let us be hospitable. Let us use our speaking gifts and our serving gifts to love one another and to love the world. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.